A quick note. This episode has a few strong words in it, so maybe have your little leaguer sit this one out, okay? On with the show. Hey, baseball fans. I'm Matt Russell, and this is Three Strikes, You're Out, the baseball history podcast. It is October, and the playoffs and World Series are here. Yes! And if pitching is your thing, we have a huge show for you. He is one of the fiercest, most intimidating, and amazing pitchers in the big leagues, and one of the best big game pitchers ever, the great Bob Gibson. This amazing athlete had five 20-game seasons and was the most dominant pitcher during the year of the pitcher in 1968. And he still has the earned run average record of 1.12 for a season in the live ball era. So let's get to it! Batter up! Bob Gibson played 17 seasons for the St. Louis Cardinals, playing from 1959 to 1975. Renowned for his fierce competitiveness and ability to intimidate batters, Gibson compiled 251 wins, 3,117 strikeouts, and a 2.91 earned run average during his career. His overpowering fastball and sharp-breaking slider, as well as his excellent control, led this future Hall of Famer to a fantastic career, including the most overpowering World Series game by a pitcher ever. Among his many accomplishments, he was a nine-time All-Star. He won the Gold Glove nine times in a row as a pitcher. He was the second player ever to get 3,000 strikeouts, the first being Walter Johnson. He was a two-time National League Cy Young Award winner. He won the National League Most Valuable Player Award in 1968. He was a World Series champion twice with the Cardinals. He still holds the record for most strikeouts in a World Series game, 17. And he still has the record for the lowest ERA in a season, 1.12, in the live ball era in Major League Baseball. Fantastic. Pat Robert Gibson was born in Omaha, Nebraska on November 9, 1935, the youngest of seven children. He was named after his father, who died shortly before Bob's birth. His mother, Victoria, worked in a laundry and cleaned houses to make ends meet. Bob spent most of his childhood living in the Logan Fontanelle housing project on Omaha's north side. Bob's oldest brother, Josh, became his surrogate father and mentor. Josh was well-educated, earning degrees in history from Creighton University near their home in Omaha. He became the program director at a recreation center near the projects and spent much of his life mentoring young boys in the local community. As Bob later recalled, quote, He had always been the central figure in my life, father, coach, teacher, and role model. Josh led by example, unquote. Josh organized youth sports teams, primarily basketball and baseball, at the recreation center. Although Gibson's early childhood included health problems like rickets and a serious case of either asthma or pneumonia when he was three, he eventually began playing ball with his brother. On the Y Monarchs, the rec center baseball team, Bob was a catcher and shortstop and occasionally pitched. He was lean, strong, and quick. He became a switch hitter who could hit for high average with some power. In 1951, the Monarchs became the first black team ever to win the American Legion City Championship. Bob was selected to the All-City team as a utility player. Bob's favorite sport, however, was basketball. In addition to playing on the rec center teams, 
He played on the Omaha Technical High School team for two seasons and was a unanimous choice for the All-City team in his senior season. Gibson was not allowed to try out for the baseball team during his junior year in high school. The excuse that was given to him for this was that he had reported a day late for tryouts. Several years later, he discovered he had been excluded because the coach at that time did not allow blacks on the team. Instead, Gibson went out for track that year, setting an Omaha indoor record in the high jump and also participating in the broad jump and sprint relays. By Gibson's senior season, a new baseball coach was in place at Tech, and Bob joined the team, playing the outfield and pitching. He finished second in batting average among city players at 368. Tech won the inner city tournament, and Gibson was selected to the all-city team as a utility player. After high school, Cardinal scout Runt Marr offered him a very modest contract, but his brother Josh insisted he go to college. Bob tried to get a basketball scholarship to Indiana University, but was denied entry because the school, quote, already had its quota of Negroes, unquote. Thanks to Josh's connections at Creighton University, Bob became the first African-American to receive a basketball scholarship from the Blue Jays. By the time his career at Creighton was over, Gibson was a university's all-time leader in points per game at 20.2 and third in total points at 1,272. Gibson's basketball jersey number, number 45, is one of three that have been retired by Creighton as of 2011 which includes former star NBA player and coach Paul Silas and Bob Portman, who also played for the NBA. Gibson also played baseball at Creighton, although baseball was treated as a minor sport at the time. His first baseball coach was Bill Fitch, an aspiring basketball coach who had been hired to coach baseball. Fitch went on to a very successful coaching career in the NBA. Bob was a superb utility player at Creighton, where he caught, pitched, and played third base and the outfield. In his senior year, he led the Nebraska College Conference with a 333 batting average and went 6-2 as a pitcher. The Dodgers, Yankees, White Sox, Phillies, and Athletics all contacted him about playing for them, but none offered a substantial bonus. Most NBA scouts seemed to pass on him as well. The Minneapolis Lakers were the only NBA team to talk to him, but they never made an offer. Opportunities to play both sports did develop, though. The Harlem Globetrotters were barnstorming the country, playing their brand of highly entertaining basketball against a group of college all-stars that accompanied them on their tours. For publicity, the Globetrotters typically ask a local college player in each city in which they played to join the all-star team. When the Globetrotters played in Omaha in the spring of 1957, Gibson was asked to join the all-stars for that game. When given the chance to play late in the third quarter, Gibson made such an impression that he was recruited to join the Globetrotters. Gibson, who had gotten married the previous day, told the Globetrotters he could not consider their offer until the baseball season and school were over. The St. Louis Cardinals were interested in him as well. Gibson finally negotiated a deal that allowed him to play the rest of the baseball season in the Cardinals minor league system, after which he would join the Globetrotters for four months. After that, Gibson and the Cardinals agreed on a deal that allowed Bob to focus solely on baseball. He received a $3,000 signing bonus, a huge bargain for what he was to accomplish in later years. Gibson reported to AAA Omaha of the American Association in June 1957. Johnny Keene, who was managing Omaha, 
determined that Gibson should focus on pitching. Gibson recalled that Keene, quote, had no prejudices concerning my color, unquote. Keene would go on to be one of the major influences in Gibson's professional baseball career. Gibson appeared in 10 games for Omaha. He notched his first win on June 23, defeating Columbus, Ohio, 4-3. He posted a 2-1 record before being sent to the Class A Columbus, Georgia Farm Club in the South Atlantic League in July. It was there that Gibson first faced a blatantly hostile environment in which blacks were treated as second-class citizens, at best, every day, and in every aspect of life. Although he had certainly experienced racial bigotry when he was younger, playing in Georgia showed Gibson the extent to which racial hatred had been institutionalized in the South. He was forced to live and eat in the black part of town, away from his teammates. Local fans did not hesitate to voice their racial prejudices at the ballpark. He was exposed to racial taunts and language he had never heard before. Thankfully, though, his time with Columbus was brief. He appeared in eight games, all as a starter, finishing 4-3 and three with a 3.77 ERA. At spring training with the Cardinals in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1958, Gibson was subjected once again to the humiliation of being forced to live apart from his white teammates. He split the season between the Cardinals' AAA clubs in Omaha and Rochester and finished with an overall record of 8-9 with a 2.84 ERA in 33 games. League managers voted his fastball best in league after the season. Gibson was a candidate for the Cardinals' rotation in 1959, but establishing himself in the big leagues would prove difficult. Gibson recalled, quote, The bad news was that my performance would be judged by the Cardinals' overmatched new player-manager, a utility infielder named Solly Hemus. His treatment of black players was the result of one of the following. Either he disliked us deeply, or he genuinely believed that the way to motivate us was with insults. He told me, like he told Kurt Flood, that I would never make it in the majors. I made the team in 1959 but Hemus had me convinced that I wasn't any damn good, and consequently, I wasn't." Unquote. Bob Gibson made his Major League debut on April 15, 1959, pitching two innings of relief in a 5 to nothing loss to the Dodgers. He surrendered two runs, including a home run to Jim Baxis, the first batter he faced. For the next two seasons, Gibson shuttled back and forth between St. Louis and the teams in Omaha and Rochester, he finally returned to the Cardinals for good in June 1960. Gibson offered a sarcastic summary of the situation years later. Quote, My best hope lay in the fact that Hemus, as much as he seemed to dislike me, might not really know me. He kept calling me Bridges, confusing me with Marshall Bridges, who was several years older than me, skinnier, and pitched left-handed. But he was black. Solly got that much right. Unquote. Gibson was not alone in his assessment of Hemus's dislike for black players. Kurt Flood, the Cardinals' star center fielder, later said of his former manager, quote, Hemus did not share the rather widely held belief that I played center field approximately as well as Willie Mays. He acted as if I smelled bad. My roommate, Bob Gibson, was just as bad off. He could throw as hard as any man alive. Hemus never used him if someone else was available, unquote. All doubts about Hemus's attitude toward his black players vanished one day in Pittsburgh when, after a fight between Hemus and Pirates pitcher Benny Daniels, Hemus told his club he had called Daniels a, quote, 
black son of a bitch, unquote. Hemus's revelation was not meant as an apology. As Flood noted later, quote, We had been wondering how the manager really felt about us, and now we knew. Black sons of bitches. Until then, we had detested Hemus for not using his best lineup. Now we hated him for himself, unquote. When the 1961 season began, Hemus used Gibson irregularly out of the bullpen and as a spot starter before giving him a place in the starting rotation. Everything changed on July 6th that year for Gibson and the other black players on the club when Hemus was fired and replaced by Johnny Keane. It was a whole new world for the black players, Gibson said later. Flood echoed Gibson's feelings about Keane. Quote, Johnny Keane was a man of great sensibility with a great sense of leadership. The most important thing, however, was this. Keane didn't give a damn about color. He said, you're my best nine men. What a powerful, supportive feeling that was. Unquote. Gibson went 11-6, and six, and the team went 47-33 and 33 after Keane took over. They had been 33-41 and 41 under Hemus. For the entire season, Gibson was 13-12 and 12 with a 3.24 ERA. With Hemus gone and people like Gibson, Flood, and Bill White leading the way, the Cardinals established an atmosphere that virtually eliminated racial tensions among the individual players and allowed the team to go on to great success in the coming years. White players who were not inclined to be so open-minded were challenged by the black leaders on the club in a way that forced them to rethink their attitudes about race. Tim McCarver, a white catcher from Memphis, Tennessee, who joined the Cardinals in 1959 at the age of 17, was one of the converts. One sweltering day in spring training in his early years, McCarver got on the team bus after a game with an ice cream cone. Gibson asked McCarver if he could take a lick of his ice cream. McCarver was clearly rattled by the request and fumbled around for an answer before finally telling Gibson he'd, quote, save him some, unquote. Gibson forced McCarver to begin to rethink his views about blacks. His goal was not to increase racial tensions between the players, though. His real goal was to force his white teammates to confront their own racial bigotries. McCarver did change, and he and Gibson became good friends. As McCarver, who is now a famous sportscaster, later recalled, quote, I believe Bob taught me a good deal about relationships with other human beings. If I came to that first spring training with many of the preoccupations of my birthplace, it was probably Gibson more than any other black man who helped me to overcome whatever latent prejudices I may have had, unquote. With improved control over his fastball and slider and the confidence of manager Johnny Keane, Gibson took his first steps towards star status in 1962. In late May, Gibson pitched 22 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings on his way to being named to his first National League All-Star team. His season was cut short in September, however, by a broken ankle suffered during batting practice. Even so, he finished with his first 200-plus strikeout season, a 15-13 and record, and a 2.85 ERA. The rehabilitation of Gibson's ankle was a slow process, and by May 19th of the following season, 1963, he had recorded only one win. But then Gibson warmed up and reeled off six straight wins by late July. Gibson's 20 RBIs as a batter also beat the combined RBI output of entire pitching staffs on other National League teams. By midseason, the Cardinals were in the pennant race and made a strong run in September before fading to six games out of first place.
But Gibson had won 18 games that year, and the nucleus of the club that would win the pennant in 1964 had been established. The 1964 Cardinals started the season slowly and were way down in the standings by June. But then they acquired a fast young outfielder named Lou Brock from the Chicago Cubs. Paired with Kurt Flood at the top of the order and batting in front of either Bill White or Dick Grote, followed by Ken Boyer, Brock's bat got hot and the Cardinals slowly moved to get back into the race. By August 23rd, the Cardinals were 11 games behind the Philadelphia Phillies and remain six and a half games behind on September 21st. The combination of a nine-game Cardinals winning streak and a 10-game Phillies losing streak then brought the season down to the final game. The Cardinals faced the New York Mets, and Gibson entered the game as a relief pitcher in the fifth inning. Aware that the Phillies were ahead of the Cincinnati Reds 4 to nothing at the time he entered the game, Gibson proceeded to pitch four innings of two-hit relief, while his teammates scored 11 runs to earn the victory. This was his 19th win of the year. The Cardinals then faced the New York Yankees in the 1964 World Series. Gibson was matched against Yankees starting pitcher Mel Stottlemyre for three of the series' seven games, with Gibson losing Game 2, then winning Game 5. In Game 7, Gibson pitched into the ninth inning, where he allowed home runs to Phil Lenz and Cleet Boyer, making the score 7-5 Cardinals. With Ray Sadecki warming up in the Cardinal bullpen, Gibson retired Bobby Richardson for the final out, giving the Cardinals their first world championship since 1946. Along with his two victories, Gibson set a new World Series record by striking out 31 batters. Gibson was named the World Series MVP, and his performance put the rest of the baseball world on notice that he was now one of the premier pitchers in the major leagues. Years later, Gibson reflected on that Cardinal team, which had become known for its team chemistry. Quote, The Cardinals were the rare team that not only believed in each other, but genuinely liked each other. As a team, we would simply not tolerate any sort of festering rancor between us, personal or racial. We brought our racial feelings out into the open and dealt with them, I'm confident I had a lot to do with it, and so did guys like White and Flood. None of us gave an inch to racism. The white players respected that, and in turn, we respected them. Of all the teams I was on, there was never a better band of men than the 64 Cardinals." Johnny Keane resigned after the 1964 World Series and was replaced by Red Shainienst. But team chemistry was not enough to carry the Cardinals through the 1965 and 1966 seasons. Although Gibson had fantastic seasons and won 20 and 21 games, respectively, the Cardinals struggled. Production from both White and Boyer slipped dramatically in 1965, and after the season, they, along with Dick Grote, were traded. After finishing 7th in 1965, the Cardinals only managed to improve to 6th place in 1966. But in the 1967 season, an improved offense led by Orlando Cepeda in his MVP season and the development of a number of young pitchers, including Steve Carlton, Ray Washburn, Dick Hughes, and Nelson Bryles, allowed the Cardinals to make the 1967 pennant race a blowout. They won 101 games and took the pennant by 10.5 games over the San Francisco Giants. The young pitching staff was crucial to the Cardinals' drive to the pennant when Gibson was forced onto the disabled list on July 15th. In that day's game against the Pirates, 
A vicious line drive off the bat of the great Roberto Clemente ricocheted off Gibson's right shin. Gibson seemed to shake it off and pitched to three more batters before his leg finally snapped just above the ankle. This cemented Gibson's reputation as a competitive and gutsy player. He returned to the rotation in September, believe it or not, and finished the regular season with a 13-7 record. In the 1967 World Series against the Boston Red Sox, Gibson allowed only three earned runs and 14 hits over the three complete game victories in games 1, 4, and 7 as the Cardinals defeated the Boston Red Sox in seven games. Gibson allowed only three earned runs and 14 hits in these three games, tying Christy Mathewson's 1905 World Series record. Just as he had in 1964, Gibson pitched a complete game victory in Game 7 and contributed offensively by hitting a home run that made the game 3 to nothing. Gibson became the only pitcher to be on the mound for the final out of Game 7 of a World Series multiple times. He had now won five consecutive World Series games, adding to his reputation as a big-game pitcher. He was named the World Series MVP for the second time. His first autobiography, From Ghetto to Glory, written with Phil Pepe, was published between the 1967 and 1968 seasons. But the following 1968 season is what truly cemented Bob Gibson's place in the record books. In what became known as the Year of the Pitcher, Major League Baseball witnessed a number of amazing pitching feats. In the American League, the Tigers' Denny McLean won 31 games, the first pitcher to win 30 games since Dizzy Dean in 1934. In the National League, the Dodgers' Don Drysdale set a record of 58 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings pitched. But Gibson's performance in 1968 outdid them all. He finished with a record of 22-9 and and an amazing 1.12 ERA, the lowest earned run average of any pitcher since the live ball era began in 1920. It is also the all-time Major League ERA record for 300 or more innings pitched. And just to give you an idea of how impressive Gibson's ERA record is, his next closest competitor is Dwight Gooden, who had a 1.53 ERA in 1985. That is 1.53 to Gibson's 1.12. A huge difference. This record will likely never be broken. He also had his own streak of 47 scoreless innings in 1968. He threw an incredible 28 complete games, including an amazing 13 shutouts. And the Cardinals again outdistanced their closest rival, the Giants, by nine games for their second consecutive National League pennant. This set up a World Series meeting with the Detroit Tigers, who were the American League champions. During the first game of the 1968 World Series, Gibson defeated the Tigers and Denny McLean 4 to nothing striking out a record 17 batters in a performance that is viewed as one of the most dominating in World Series history. This record still stands. In Game 4, he had another complete game victory and hit his second World Series home run, giving the Cardinals a 3-1 lead in the series and giving Gibson a record 7 consecutive complete game victories in World Series play. The Tigers won games 5 and 6, however, setting up a showdown between Gibson and Tigers lefty Mickey Lolich. Game 7 was scoreless in the 7th inning until the Tigers scored 3 runs on a drive by Jim Northrup over the head of Kirk Flood in center field. 
There is some controversy on this play, as some say Flood misplayed it. To me, it was clear that Flood slipped on the turf, and the ball was really well hit by Northrop. Look it up on YouTube and make the judgment yourself. To me, it was a hit, and would have been a fantastic play if Flood had made the catch. But it was not an error. In any event, Detroit ended up winning the game 4-1, to and were world champions for 1968. Man, I would love to watch this entire World Series again. On a personal note, I remember watching this World Series on TV as a 10-year-old kid. My memories of Bob Gibson are that he was almost unstoppable. He glowered at the batter as he got ready to pitch. His fastball was excellent, and his slider was a true wipeout pitch. To top it off, his control was amazing, and he didn't hesitate to throw high and tight to a batter if he felt the need to back him off the plate. I actually felt sorry for anyone who faced him during these years. He's truly one of the all-time greatest pitchers I've ever seen. For some really excellent footage of Bob Gibson pitching and some interesting interviews with him, take a look at the 2016 documentary called Fastball. I watched it on Netflix at the time, but it is now available on Amazon Video. It may be available on other streaming services. It is an excellent documentary with footage of other baseball greats such as Justin Verlander and David Price. Highly recommended. Here's a few quotes from other players about Bob Gibson's famous intimidation tactics. From Hank Aaron speaking to Dusty Baker. Quote, Don't dig in against Bob Gibson. He'll knock you down. He'd knock down his own grandmother if she dared to challenge him. Don't stare at him. Don't smile at him. Don't talk to him. He doesn't like it. If you happen to hit a home run, don't run too slow. Don't run too fast. If you happen to want to celebrate, get in the tunnel first. And if he hits you, don't charge the mound, because he's a gold glove boxer. Unquote. Yikes, that's from one of the greatest hitters ever. From Dick Allen, Philly's power-hitting third baseman. Quote, Gibson was so mean, he'd knock you down and then meet you at home plate to see if you wanted to make something of it. Unquote. From Jim Ray Hart, catcher for the Giants. Quote, Between games, Willie Mays came over to me and said, Now in the second game, you're going up against Bob Gibson. I only half listened to what he was saying, figuring it didn't make much difference. So I walked up to the plate the first time and started digging a little hole with my back foot. No sooner did I start digging that hole than I hear Willie screaming from the dugout, No! Well, the first pitch came inside. No harm done, though. So I dug in again. The next thing I knew, there was a loud crack and my left shoulder was broken. I should have listened to Willie. Unquote. And I absolutely love this one. From National League umpire Doug Harvey. Quote, Barry Bonds? I'll tell you what. If he hit a home run off Gibson or Drysdale and stood and admired it, they'd knock that earring out of his ear the next time up. Unquote. As I said, I felt bad for batters facing Bob Gibson. For his efforts during the 1968 season, Gibson was voted the National League MVP Award and was a unanimous selection for the National League Cy Young Award. Gibson's dominance in 1968, along with the performances of Drysdale and McLean, was the driving force behind Major League Baseball's decision to narrow the strike zone and lower the mound from 15 inches to 10 inches for the 1969 season. Unfortunately, things went downhill for the Cardinals after 1968, although Gibson still had some great seasons ahead of him. 
Orlando Cepeda, their clubhouse cheerleader, was traded to the Atlanta Braves for Joe Torre before the 1969 season. For the season, Gibson went 20-13 with a 2.18 ERA, 4 shutouts, and 28 complete games. And on May 12, 1969, Gibson struck out three batters on nine pitches in the seventh inning of a 6-2 win over the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is known as an immaculate inning and is extremely rare. Gibson became the ninth National League pitcher and the 15th pitcher in Major League history to throw one. He also set another mark on August 16th when he became the third pitcher in Major League history to throw 200 strikeouts in seven different seasons. However, even with Gibson's great pitching, the Cardinals dropped to fourth place in the National League's new Eastern Division. The 1970 season started with both the Cardinals and Gibson struggling, but he got hot in late July, starting a streak of seven wins on July 28th and pitching all 14 innings of a 5-4 win against the San Diego Padres on August 12th. He would go on to win his fourth and final National League Player of the Month award for August, with a 6-0 record, a 2.31 ERA, and 55 strikeouts. Gibson ended up winning 23 games and picked up his second and final Cy Young Award. It would also be the last time he would win 20 games in a season. Gibson was an excellent hitter and was sometimes used by the Cardinals as a pinch hitter. In 1970, he hit 303 for the season in 109 at-bats, which was better than many of his teammates and very close to superstar Lou Brock's 304. For his career, he batted 206 with 44 doubles, 5 triples, 24 home runs, plus 2 more in the World Series, and 144 RBIs. He also stole 13 bases and walked 63 times. His record slipped to 16-13 and 13 in 1971, but he had two major highlights. On August 4th, he defeated the Giants 7-2 at Bush Memorial Stadium for his 200th career victory. Ten days later, he pitched a no-hitter against the eventual world champion Pittsburgh Pirates, winning 11-0 at Three Rivers Stadium. Three of his ten strikeouts in the game were to Willie Stargell, including the game's final out. The no-hitter was the first in Pittsburgh since Nick Maddox at Exposition Park in 1907. None had ever been pitched in the 62-year history of Forbes Field, which was the predecessor to Three Rivers Stadium. Gibson began the 1972 season by going 0-5, but broke the Cardinal record for pitching victories on June 21st and finished the year with 19 wins. He also made his last appearance in an All-Star game. In 1973, the Cardinals were in pennant contention in August when he tore knee cartilage while running the bases. The Cardinals didn't play well while Gibson was out and lost the division to the Mets by one and one-half games. Gibson's season record was just 12-10. and 10. During the 1974 season, Gibson became only the second pitcher in Major League Baseball history after Walter Johnson to strike out over 3,000 batters, and the first to do so in the National League. He accomplished this at home at Bush Stadium on July 17, 1974. His victim was Cesar Geronimo of the Cincinnati Reds. During the summer of 1974, though, Gibson continually encountered swelling in his knee and struggled for wins. Even so, the Cardinals were in contention right down to the final day of the season. Sadly, they lost a chance to win the division when Gibson gave up an eighth-inning home run to the Montreal Expos' Mike Jorgensen 
and lost the game 3-2. Gibson finished with a record of 11-13, his first losing season since 1960. In January of 1975, Gibson announced he would retire at the end of the 1975 season. He didn't pitch well and was eventually sent to the bullpen. Gibson picked up his last win in the major leagues on July 27th in a relief appearance against the Philadelphia Phillies. He left the team prior to the last road trip of the season and called it a career. He went 3-10 with a 5.04 ERA. Bob Gibson finished with a career record of 251 wins and 174 losses and an overall ERA of 2.91. When he retired, his 3,117 strikeouts were a National League record and second overall only to Walter Johnson. He had 255 complete games, including 56 shutouts. He was 7-2 in World Series play and was selected to the All-Star team nine times. During his playing career, he was widely regarded as one of the best fielding pitchers of his generation, winning the National League Gold Glove Award at his position for nine straight seasons from 1965 to 1973. After his retirement, he had several stints as coach, all with his friend and former teammate Joe Torrey. In 1981, Torrey hired him as an attitude coach for the New York Mets for one season. Torrey was hired to manage the Atlanta Braves in 1982, and Gibson joined him as pitching coach through the 1984 season. Joe Torrey was later hired to manage the Cardinals in 1990, and in 1995, Gibson came aboard as pitching coach for the season. Gibson also served as a special instructor for the Cardinals for several years. Gibson's jersey number 45 was retired by the St. Louis Cardinals on September 1, 1975. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1981 in his first year of eligibility. In 1999, he ranked number 31 on the Sporting News list of the 100 greatest baseball players and was elected to the Major League Baseball All-Century team. And in January 2014, the Cardinals announced Gibson would be inducted into the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame Museum for the inaugural class of 2014. Bob Gibson was truly a pitcher's pitcher, probably the greatest World Series pitcher ever, and truly one of the all-time greats of the game. Next time, Three Strikes You're Out will feature one of my favorite players on maybe the best Baltimore Orioles team ever, the powerful first baseman, Boog Powell. It'll be a fun one. See you in the bleachers. Special mentions go out to the following. I would like to thank YouTuber Mr. Runnerholic. Look him up for his permission to use his cover of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Awesome, man. I love it. Also, I have to mention the great internet baseball history resource, Saber.org. That's S-A-B-R dot O-R-G. Or Society for American Baseball Research. I use this extensively for my shows and really love their well-written and researched articles. I recommend you take a look. You won't be sorry. For show notes and a list of sources I used for the show, or to make a comment, please visit my website, threestrikesyearout.com. That's threestrikesyearout.com. Also, if you get a chance, please review the podcast in the iTunes Store app on your phone, tablet, or computer. Just look up the podcast name, click on Ratings and Reviews, then click on Write a Review.